Thank you to Belinda and thank you to the praise band. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter is where we're going to be uh, this morning. We've been moving through the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're kind of back full speed now. We had taken a little break through the holidays and uh, now we've been back in 1 Corinthians for the past two or three weeks or so. So uh, this is where we'll be, um, I would suspect, for a while until we uh, aim to finish out that book or God kind of redirects a little, little, uh, a little side street somewhere between now and then. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Well, we've been looking um, as we've gone through this book that God has addressed uh, a number of issues within the church there in the city of Corinth. And today he kind of shifts gears a little bit. You'll see how he does that in that this is a letter that was written by Paul. You'll hear me often refer to what Paul says or, or what Paul says to this church specifically. But really what we have to understand up front is that it, though Paul is the one who wrote 1 Corinthians, it's God, the, God is the one who says it. And so God inspired Paul to write everything he, he wrote. And uh, anytime we look in a passage such as the one we're going to look at this morning, we have to understand and remember that God is the one giving us uh, these words. God is the one who, is, uh, who has written this letter ultimately through the Apostle Paul. And so what Paul has begun to do here as God has led him is that he is beginning to shift gears a little bit in chapter 7, and he's starting to deal more with questions that have come up from the, uh, from the believers in the city or in the church in Corinth. And the nature of those questions here in chapter 7 begins to take a specific shape and a specific form, and it deals with the top, topic of the single life, married life, marriage and divorce, and then also purity within marriage. And so at the end of chapter 6, and then moving into chapter 7, he, deal, he begins to deal with the topic of, of um, sexual purity, both in the single life and in the married life as well. And, and it's extremely applicable today, because when you think about the world in which we live, it, this, is a, th- this culture that we live in is sexually charged. I mean, you can't go anywhere without having that topic put before you, whether it's a grocery store checkout or whether it's a television station or whether it's a magazine. Uh, marketers understand that. I mean, marketing today seems to capitalize on the fact that sex sells and hamburger ads and website ads and shampoo ads and car ads and every kind of advertisement you can imagine seems to have some segment of, uh, of this topic that's attached to it. Movies that you watch, they may be uh, family-friendly, but there's going to be a comment or there's going to be some little snippet there, uh, brief as it may be, that is going to have some type of a sexual tone to it oftentimes. Why? Because Hollywood understands that sex sells. Well, it's the culture we live in. And when you think about the, 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 the tension and the dynamics that come out of that, you know, it'd be really helpful if God had a take on it, right? It'd be really helpful if God gave us some insight as to how do we handle ourselves as believers, as followers of Christ in a way that, that, that understands that aspect of life because God created it. But how do, we, how do we understand what God wants in regards to purity? And how do we live out our lives in a way that is pure sexually, whether single or married. Well, the good news is, is that God does deal with that. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a place where he begins to do that. Now, understand, for a lot of you, you come from different backgrounds. Every one of us uh, do. Your, your background may have been that your family, when you were growing up, was very open. This may have been a topic you know, that was discussed. Do you remember the talk? And your dad was sitting there with his hands sweaty and his face red, and he had the talk with you. Others of you were raised in families where the talk never came. <laughs> you were kind of left to figure out what was right and wrong on your own. Every, every family is different. Every dynamic is different. But the good news is that God does speak to this aspect of life. He does speak to the topic of sexual purity. And in this chapter, he begins to deal with it very forthrightly, very upfront. And he does so in a way that's very, very clear. Now, here's what we need to remember as well, is that when we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church, and he's answering questions. 
That's all he's doing. Now, there has been a letter that we don't have a record of. It's not in the Smithsonian. It's not in some seminary somewhere. But there was a letter that was written, and it's easy to discern that. We'll read through First and Second Corinthians. A letter that was written from the church in Corinth to Paul. That letter has been lost, but in that letter they are asking questions and they're wanting insight from Paul on a certain number of topics. Well, when we get to chapter 7, we understand here that Paul undoubtedly is answering some questions they had about sexual purity. They, their thinking was beginning to go way off course, and you'll see that in chapter 7. And so Paul, in this chapter, is answering questions that the believers in Corinth had about this topic of purity as it relates to to sex within marriage and also as it relates to the married life. And so there's a, an overarching principle that I want us to see. And as we move through these first nine verses in chapter 7, this principle is going to come into play. And I hope you'll jot it down. And the principle is this, that God sets sexual boundaries in a person's life ultimately for their own fulfillment. Whenever we see, as we're going to see here today, that there are boundaries as, that, as they relate to sexual purity... God sets those boundaries in place for a reason, and it's not because he is, is uh, a God who is against your enjoyment in life. God puts those boundaries in place for the single and for the married alike for the purpose of ultimately fulfillment in our lives. He puts those there for the reason of putting himself on display, highlighting his purity, but also for our own fulfillment. Whenever we read this chapter, we have to read it in the context in which it was written. And we remember that Corinth was a sexually charged city, much like our culture today. In fact, if you've been here through the course of this series, you remember uh, some explanations of what that city was like. It was a very godless city. In fact, there was a Greek verb, a word in the Greek language that translates to Corinthianize, and, and it was a reference to sexual immorality. I mean, their culture was so off target in regards to morality, uh, sexually, that there was a verb coined after them. I mean, it referred to everything immoral. That's the way their city was. That's the, that, that was what their city stood for. There were, was false religion there in their city. You remember me saying, I think even last Sunday, that uh, there were a thousand temple prostitutes, historians tell us, that would ascend the hill, the Acre Corinth, and they would, under the guise of false religion, come down into the city of Corinth virtually every night. They would work their trade under the guise of religion, and that was the culture in which they lived. And so sex was everywhere. It, it was misunderstood. It was mishandled. It was uh, uh, badly abused. And it was out of that culture that a lot of the people in Corinth ultimately came to Christ. And they were having to find themselves. They were having to learn, how do we live out a new life? How do we live out purity in a culture that so discourages it? <laughs> kind of like today. They were, they were wondering, how do, how do, I, how do I operate in, in, in a culture where temptation surrounds me? And yet I want to try to strive for and to live for Christ, but how do I live out my faith in a way that puts Christ on display? And many of them were having a hard time with this. There was immorality beginning to make its way into the church. Paul dealt with that in chapter 5. The church was excusing a significant part of the immorality that was taking place. Paul spoke to that in chapter 5. And, and, and as we move on through, you get to chapter 6, you see that there were other issues within the church. They were not showing love one towards another the way that they should. And Paul begins to deal with these things. He begins to address them. And he, he, he talks about the need for, for a purity in one's life. And it moves right into chapter, chapter 7. And Paul begins to deal with sexual purity as it relates to marriage, as it relates to singles, as it relates to every single person. And what we see there as a summary is that the principle is that God sets sexual boundaries for ultimately our own fulfillment in our lives. And so let's go ahead and begin to jump in. And we're going to begin in chapter 7, verse 1. 
We're going to read just the first nine verses. And again, keep in mind that as Paul writes this portion of the letter, it's not going to be an exhaustive treatise on uh, sexual purity. He's not going to cover all of the elements of, of this topic in these first nine verses or even in this whole chapter. He's not going to do that. He is only answering questions. And so there are going to be some things that are left unsaid that Scripture is going to speak to elsewhere. Think, for example, if somebody asked you, you know, they wrote you a letter, they said, hey, I need some insight on dieting. You know, uh, what, 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 what insight can you give me on dieting? You're not going to write them a 40-page discourse, right? You're not going to put together a 40-page document on dieting and get it back to them. No, you're just going to kind of give them what they need to hear based on their circumstances. That's what Paul's doing here. So he's not going to answer every question as it relates to, to uh, sex within marriage or, or, or sexual purity in a person's life. He's only dealing with the questions they've asked. And so some things are going to be left unsaid that we're going to have to find elsewhere in Scripture. And so God is writing through Paul. He's answering questions of real people, reflective of the culture in which we live still today. And the, under, the overarching uh, uh, principle is that God sets these boundaries in place, ultimately for our fulfillment. So chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through all nine verses, and then we'll begin to move through a little more slowly and make some application at the end. Verse 1, chapter 7. Paul writes, he says, oh, let me say this before I start. There are going to be some things here that are going to make you really scratch your head. They're going to sound backwards and counter to our culture. Just hold tight, strap your seatbelts because we'll get there. Verse 1, he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. By this I say, by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There is a book called Love and Respect. It's by a man named Emerson Egrich. He makes this, the statement, and I read that book probably three or four years ago, outside of the Bible, it's the best book on marriage that, uh, that I've ever read. And he makes the statement there, it's a very interesting statement. He said, before marriage, the enemy does everything he can to get a couple into bed. And then after marriage, the enemy does everything he can to keep them out of it. And he talks about the tension that is there, a tension that is very real in the life of a single person as to how they handle that aspect of their life. It's something that God has created them with. It's a drive that God has given, and yet it's a drive that is needful, needing of boundaries. And he talks in that book about how a single person is to operate by those boundaries and then how married folks are to operate by those boundaries. And then we, when we look at this passage of Scripture, it takes an interesting, interesting track. I think for some, they'd be a little surprised that the Bible even speaks to this specifically. Some of you may be brand new you know, to go into church and reading your Bible, and you may be brand new Christian. You're thinking, wow, did the Bible? <laughs> you're telling me the Bible just said everything that, that I just read? Yeah, that's what God said. He speaks to this topic. He speaks to it very boldly. And interestingly, elsewhere, he says a lot about sexual purity and about that aspect of our lives as well. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to this topic. 
topic, basically. And God talks about more than just the physical side of it. He talks about the heart side of it. It's a book called Song of Solomon. It's like PG-13. I wouldn't recommend it. You know, we're not teaching it upstairs, you know, to our K through fifth graders, for example. I wouldn't get the kids around the table and read a devotional thought out of Song of Solomon anytime soon with your children. But God speaks to that. Why? Because he wants us to know his take on that aspect of life for singles and for marrieds as well. He wants us to understand what his heart is. In fact, we can't even understand this passage in chapter 7 unless we read it in context. We, we have to read it in context. A good rule of thumb when you're reading Scripture is to read Scripture in context. How many cult groups have been started, by the way, because someone took one little tiny verse, they drug it, kick it and scream it out of context, and built a whole scope of thought around it? I mean, you have to read verses in context. A 20-20 rule is kind of, kind of the norm. You read 20 verses before and 20 verses after. Well, that's what I want us to do this morning. We won't go 20 verses, but let's back up a little bit and get the context of what Paul is saying. Let's go to chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, just before chapter 7. Here's what Paul writes. He says, flee immorality. It's the only sin I know of in Scripture, by the way, as I said last week, where where God tells us to flee. Not stand and fight, not put on the armor of God and stand and go toe-to-toe with the enemy when he tempts you, but in regards to sexual immorality, he says, flee. Don't see how strong you are. Don't test your strength by according to, you know, to where you fall. He says, just flee. Flee immorality, he says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. I'll pause there for a second. Don't take the verse down. I would say, this is my opinion. It doesn't say this in the Bible. This is my opinion, that... There is no other brokenness or devastation or heartache or sorrow or regret that comes with sin like sexual sin. Devastation, utter brokenness, doesn't mean God doesn't forgive. He does. Doesn't mean God doesn't restore. He does. Doesn't mean He doesn't heal. He does. But there is often a long road associated with the healing that comes from sexual sin. And Paul says in context in chapter 6, flee immorality, don't mess with it, don't see how close to the line you can get. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but it's this sin specifically, sexual sin, sins against his own body. Do you not know, he says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, he says to the Christian, whom you have from God, that you're not your own. You have been bought with a price, he says. It's a reference to the cross, that Jesus gave his own life for us on the cross. He says, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's the context into which Paul writes chapter 7. And so he begins to answer questions. He begins to shift gears. And he's saying that God sets boundaries, sexual boundaries in our lives for our ultimate fulfillment. So what are the boundaries? The boundaries are very simple, according to this passage. For those who are not married, the sexual boundary is abstinence. And he's very clear. That goes against the culture today. goes against everything that all your friends would say. If you're a student, you're not going to hear that taught in your school, typically, depending on what school you go to. It's certainly not going to be reinforced by people who don't have a relationship with Christ. If you're single today, in any form, any age, any fashion, that message of abstinence before marriage is not going to be reinforced except according to Scripture and those who seek to honor God. It's not a popular message, yet it's God's message. Why is that? Because He is the one who's created that aspect of our lives. He's the one who's wired us with that drive. It's not evil. It's not sinful. And yet the boundaries exist for our fulfillment. And if we step outside those boundaries enormous cost comes as a result. 
In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, he says an awful lot about this topic. Chapter 5, 6, 7, and portions of 8, portions of those chapters say an awful lot. Look at what it says here, in, uh, specifically in Proverbs chapter, uh, chapter 5. He says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, what God is saying there, he says, there are boundaries that exist. They're there for your benefit. If you are not married, he says, that boundary means to abstain. If you are married, according to 1 Corinthians 7, he says that you're to pursue that aspect of who you are. You're, you're to pursue the uh, uh, intimacy with your spouse. That is, that is a part of what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is saying, but the boundaries are there for a reason. Now, we can kick against the boundaries. You may be a single and say, well, I don't see anything wrong with this. I, you know, I love the person that I'm with. No, we're not married, but I see no, no problem getting involved sexually with another person as long as you love them. You may have all your rationalizations. All I'm saying is that goes outside the design of what God's Word says, outside the design of God's ideal, outside the design of God's command. It constitutes sin. Sin always costs typically more than you would ever expect. The boundaries are there not to push against, kick against, be angry about, but to live within and to live within for joy, with joy. You know, think about this. Next Sunday, there's going to be the biggest game of the football season, the Super Bowl. Broncos, Seahawks are going to go at it, MetLife Stadium. Imagine that you go, you know, the, the game comes on, the lights come on, the, the, you know, the, the commercial goes away, and off to the game, you're sitting there, you, you got your big screen, you're ready for the big game, and uh, you got your chicken wings, right? You're ready for it, you've been looking forward to this, you got your jersey on for your favorite team. And imagine, when at, just before kickoff, the announcers come on and say, there has been something amazing that has happened here. For those of you tuning in viewing, you'll never believe this, but someone has come into the stadium uh, last night, and with no one else here, they moved all the boundary lines. Uh, you know, the sidelines have now been extended an extra 20 yards each direction. One of the goal lines is missing. You know, it's no longer 10 yards for a first down. We don't have 10-yard markers. They're now like 25 and 18 and 7. You know, imagine, what kind of a game would that be? I mean, you would choke on your chicken wing, right? This would be, this would be hor- horrendous for some of you. Why? Because you can't play the game without the boundary lines. The boundary lines exist. Uh, you, you've got boundary lines in your yard, and if your neighbor, some, you know, if they build over that line, you're going to be having a conversation. Why? The boundary lines are there for fulfillment. They're there to keep, the, keep things clear and to keep things proper. And it's the same in, the, in the, this aspect of sexual purity. God has put the boundary lines there, not because he's against joy or against fulfillment or against life. He's put them there because he's for all those things. And he's put in there specifically for a reason. So let's begin to move through this passage a little more slowly, uh, beginning in verse 1. Again, I said there were some really head-scratching things that were there. And let's try to touch base on some of those. Here's one to start with. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now some of you would say, some of you guys would say, okay, I disagree. <laughs> yeah, I'm against that fundamentally. I don't know what the Bible's saying. Here's probably a better rendering of that. If you've got a version like the English Standard Version, for example, I think that English translation is a better translation of this verse. If you could put quote marks around the part that's highlighted yellow there, it would probably be a little more easy to understand. Probably what Paul is saying is, in this first statement, he's summarizing a good portion of their letter. You'll see that as we move through this chapter. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, summary, let me quote this, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's a reference to sexual intimacy. More than likely what happened was, in this letter that Paul received from the believers in the Corinthian church, 
Yes, there were some that were involved in immorality. Yes, there were some that were excusing immorality, but there was also another segment of that church who had mistakenly assumed in order to be more holy and in order to be more spiritual, they needed to abstain from sex even within their own marriages. And they had completely withdrawn from their spouse. There were others that were saying, you know what? To be most holy and to be most spiritual, we don't even need to be married at all because it weighs us down in our walks with God. It distracts us in our walks with God. And so there were some in that church, undoubtedly, that were beginning to get out of their marriage for those reasons, and they were divorcing their spouses. Paul speaks to all of that in chapter 7. Some of it we won't get to today, but we'll get there. And so more than likely in their letter, they, they, they bring all this up. And so Paul, in verse 1, summarizes, says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, quote, It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Let me speak to some of that now. And he begins to speak. Verse 2 and verse 3. He says, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty. It's a reference to sexual uh, interaction. Fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, could there be two verses that devalue marriage any more than those two? So you're telling me, Brooks, that Paul is saying the only reason to get married is just to fulfill that, that physical side. Is that all he's saying? No, he's not saying that. I mean, again, there are other passages in Scripture that capture the real heart of God. Ephesians chapter 5, for example, where marriage between a husband and wife is, is reflective of the relationship between Jesus and the church, the bride of Christ. I mean, God understands all of that. I mean, God created it and designed it. So Paul is not saying the only reason to get married is for the physical. He's not saying that, but he is owning up to the fact that there is a certain practical aspect where physical fulfillment comes within the boundaries of marriage. He's owning up to that in those two verses. He moves on, verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Some of you ladies got really, really riled up there, I bet, in your heart. You'd never admit it when I read that first part. Some of you guys were thinking, yes, best sermon I ever heard. Okay, and then the next part of verse 4 says, and likewise also the husband does not, see, he, he says the same thing again, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So what does all this mean? Jeff Henderson, a pastor up in the Atlanta area, has made a comment, and I love it because it, I think it captures so much of this. He, he says, your spouse is the only legitimate option for sexual fulfillment in your life. Your spouse is your only legitimate, and I would add to that, godly option for sexual fulfillment in your life. That's what this verse is talking about. You read that passage, and you say, boy, it sounds kind of chauvinistic to me. I don't, you know, I'm my own person, and I don't belong to anybody. Here's what Paul has in mind. Paul was... Paul was sharp. Paul knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, that verse makes a lot more sense. It says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the second chapter of this whole big book called the Bible. In the second chapter, God's speaking to this. And so when you go back to verse 4 again, I'm not trying to confuse you or lose track here. If you go back to verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 7, and you keep in mind this whole one flesh mentality, that when a husband and wife stand before God and they say, I do, and they pledge themselves for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, uh, and they make these promises and they step into this covenant and they connect and they commit and they covenant before God, somehow in a way only God could orchestrate and only God could explain. Yes, they're two individual people still, thankfully, but they become one. They become one flesh 
And that physical union signifies that. Paul has all that in mind, and he says, summary, verse 4, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. It's not just her body anymore. It also belongs to her husband. And oh, by the way, guys, uh, your body is not your own either. It also belongs to your wife. Why? Genesis 2.24, the two have become one. You're made one flesh. It's not a chauvinistic statement. It's not a misguided statement. It is a statement that fits the, 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 the beautiful picture of the whole of Scripture. But it goes all the way back to the very beginning that the two shall become one. That's what Paul is saying there in verse 4. Look up to, to, to verse 5 and verse 6. He begins to, to get a little more, not forceful, but he begins to kind of cut to the chase here. He says, verse 5, stop depriving one another. Now, remember what I said earlier. In, in the Corinthian church, there was a segment of people who had become so holy, you know, they, they, they were feeling wrongly so, that they could be more spiritual and more pleasing to God and more holy if they would just become abstinent as married people and withdraw from their own spouses in that manner. And Paul is speaking to this. He says, no. He says, that is not proper. That's not the way God has, 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 has designed marriage. It's not the way God has created you. He says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. He said, there, there are a couple of, of uh, exceptions here. Except for agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says, so stop depriving each other. He's speaking in regards to intimacy. He says, stop doing this. Stop depriving one another. This is, God has created you for this. It's a blessing, the part of marriage. As married people, this is something that you should be celebrating and enjoying and being grateful for. So stop depriving for, uh, for, uh, one another. But if you do, and, and you desire to just kind of step away, like a fast to some degree, and you desire to, to draw closer to God, here are two parameters for you. Number one, make sure you both mutually consent. And then number two, make sure it's only for a short time because the enemy knows your number and he knows your, the temptations that, will, that, that he can bring and you need to practically keep that for a short time. He says, so stop depriving one another. Celebrate what God has given you in the gift of marriage and the gift of intimacy. But if you do, here, here are the parameters for you. Here's how you need to operate. And he lays it out very clearly. And again, it clears the confusion for those in the Corinthian church. It completely clears it up. For, the, for those that were feeling that they were more spiritual because they were abstaining as married people, Paul says, no, that's, that's, that's nonsense. No, God's blessed you with this aspect of marriage. Celebrate it. For those that were divorcing their spouses because they thought it would make them more useful to God and, and more significant and more spiritual and more holy as single people again, Paul says that's nonsense. And he's going to deal with that more in chapter 7. Stop depriving one another, he says. Celebrate what God has done. And then in the next verse, he begins to speak a little more to those who are unmarried. In verse 7, he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, this is the Apostle Paul who's writing. There's no evidence in Scripture that Paul was married or that he was single. It's just not addressed. And he just doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, I'm a married guy. Don't y'all, got, don't y'all all know this? He doesn't say it. There's been speculation for centuries about whether Paul was married or whether he was single. Um, I guess people didn't have anything else to do except to argue about that. Uh, Pharisees traditionally were married. Paul was a Pharisee before he was a believer. People would assume he had to have been married. Could he have been widowed? Very possibly. But it sounds like in this verse, in the context, that he, as he writes this letter, is single. Uh, was he always single? or widowed? Again, we don't, we don't have any idea. But he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. It's interesting, the word gift, I've highlighted it for a reason, because it's a word in the Greek language from which we get uh, our word charisma. It, it means grace gift. 
And when you look at the single life, I preached a message on this a couple of years ago in a series I did on burning questions in marriage and relationships. When you look at the call to the single life, I remember before I was married, I was 37 when I was married, and so I was kind of like an old guy before I got married. And, um, and I remember when I was in seminary specifically, Susan and I were just starting to, to date, and I remember thinking, man, you know, I, I, I want to be married. I don't want to be single. I have a desire to be married, <laughs> specifically. I have a real desire to be married to her, but God, what do you want? And I was prayed about all this. And I really wrestled with, what if God's calling me to be single? I don't want to be single. You know, I don't have a desire to be single, but what if he's calling me to be single? Am I willing to obey if that's what God wants? Here's an interesting thing about this verse. Is that, the, does God call some to the single life? Yes, he does. The norm in scripture is marriage. But he does call some to the single life. For those he calls to the single life, however, it's not against their will. It's not kicking and screaming. This is a grace gift from God. <laughs> so if you're there and you're a single person and, and you're wondering, you know, you're like, I want to be married and I have a desire for this. and That's what I desire. But gosh, what if God's calling me to be single? He's going to give you desire for that if that's the gift that he's given you. He's going to give you a desire for that. So Paul says practically, he'll deal with it later in chapter 7. You can do a whole lot more as a single person for the glory of God. You're not, you, you don't have extra responsibilities like a married person does or a person with a family. He says you can do more practically as a single person. I wish for the sake of the kingdom of God, I wish that you were like I am. Sounds like he's saying he's single. He says, but it's not my call. Every man has his own gift from God. That's God's call as to who's single and who's married. Verse 8. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, there's not an overarching, there's not an overarching apply to everyone command to be married or to be single. It's God's call in a person's life. We're going to dig into that a little bit more as we move through the rest of chapter 7. But what Paul has done here, and he's done it in a phenomenal way, is that he's driven home the simple principle that God sets sexual boundaries for every person, whether single or married, and he does it for your own fulfillment. That's why he does it. The people in the Corinthian church had begun to miss that. They had begun to misunderstand it. They had begun to make decisions that weren't reflective of what God desired for them. And so through this letter... Paul writes, and he addresses, and he reminds them of the boundaries that God has set for their ultimate good. So what's some application here? Let me give you three real quickly, and then we'll, we'll be done. Three, three, we'll call them tips or applications, whatever you want to call them. Three things to be mindful of. Number one is that you need to praise God for the boundaries. If you're a single person, I know you live in a, in a world that is very difficult, that's very tempting, Extremely, extremely challenging to live a life that's pure in this area of your life. If you're a married person, temptations still abound. The enemy still lurks. But those are not excuses for us to say, I can never live in purity the way God's called me to. You can. If you're a student and all of your friends are living without boundaries... And all of your friends tell you, why don't you just give in? Why do you have to do that? Why do you have to be you know, the way you are? Why don't you just do like everybody else is doing? And you begin to think, oh, I can never live this way. I'll never have friends. Listen, you can. The Holy Spirit of God, if you're a believer, lives within you. And if you, as a believer, have God himself living in you, you have everything it takes to walk a walk of purity. And I think there's a point where we have to quit excusing one another when we fall. 
right? We have, to, we have to start raising the bar, holding one another accountable, encouraging one another, and in this area specifically. And so whatever the boundaries are that God's given you, whether single or married, praise Him for the boundaries. They're there for you. They're there for your good. They're there to save a lot of heartache. They're there to save heartache in a lot of other people. They're there to protect you and to preserve you and to give fulfilling life to you. And so praise God ultimately for the boundaries. Number two, I would say don't move the boundaries. <laughs> Don't try to move the boundaries. I mean, you can't finagle with these boundaries. You can move your boundary line and your property, and you might get away from, might get away with it for 30 years until somebody else surveys the property. You can't move the boundary lines in regards to sexual purity and get away, get away uh, with it for an instant. You can't. It will cost you, and it will cost you greatly. So if you're single, you can't give in an inch. You can't, you can't flinch. You can't do anything to try to move those boundary lines. If you're, if you're married, you can't give in at all. You can't give in emotionally. You can't go to websites. You can't watch stuff on TV. You can't let your guard down with members of the opposite sex and share things with members of the opposite sex that only should be shared with your wife so you, or your husband. You, can't, you cannot move the boundaries. Purity is purity. And the enemy, I'm telling you, he's not going to come to you with a red jumpsuit and a pitchfork and pointy ears and a, ah, he's not going to do that. That's not the way he operates. He operates subtly. And if it takes him 40 years for you to fall, he'll be glad to wait. And you're not going to fall typically because of one moment in your life. You're going to fall because the boundary line got moved inch by inch by inch to the point to where you fall over the edge. Don't move the boundary lines. Before marriage, abstinence. After marriage, pursue that intimacy with your spouse only. Chapter 7 says. And then number three, the third thing I would say, is to enjoy life within the boundaries. If you're single and you're waiting and you're praying and, and, and it's just up to God, you've done the bar scene and you've done everything you can to try to find somebody, you've thrown your hands up and said, you know what, if I'm going to be married, God's just got to do something that's that's a good place to be you know enjoy life as you wait cultivate who you are let god don't look for the perfect person just let god mold you into that and let god bring the person to you he does a really good job with that i'm just telling you and if you're married enjoy life within those boundaries all your buddies and all your friends are telling you what you're missing out hey listen marriage is a gift of god and purity within that marriage there is no price tag that can reflect the price and the value of purity within the marriage that God's given you. So enjoy life within the boundaries. Imagine for a second that you choose to build a playground for the kids in your community. You've never done it before. You've never done anything, really, to, to do something of this size. But you decide one day, you're drinking coffee and just it's a burst, and you decide, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my money out of savings, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest the money that I have, and I'm going to invest the toil and the sweat and the tears. I'm going to design, and I'm going to build the most Mac Daddy playground our community's ever seen. And I'm going to go buy the stuff, and I'm going to construct it, and I'm going to put a fence around it so that we can keep all the, all the, the dogs and the animals out and the bad people out, and I'm going to make it safe. I'm going to put like a six-foot fence up there, and kids can't climb, and they can't get out, and I'm going to put a list of rules so that the kids know how to operate within that playground so they're not calling each other bad names, and they're not you know, doing things and chewing gum and bringing in all kind of food that's going to ruin the equipment, and I'm going to tell them you know, a list of rules that says don't run because you're going to fall and get hurt. And, don't do all this kind of, yeah, you know, I'm just going to, that's what I want to do. And you build this playground, and you, it takes a year. 
and you put the fence in and you've got the, you know, the, the, the safe equipment and it's the most Mac Daddy playground this community has ever seen and you did it, you built it, you gave, you paid for it, you put the blood and sweat and tears in the design and you created, you did all of it and imagine how, how great it would be the day when you swing open those gates and you just step back and nobody even really recognizes you, you're just kind of standing back and you see dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of kids just flood that playground and man, they are playing and they are swinging they are laughing and they are joking and they're having the best time of their life. And you sit back and you say, this is exactly the way that I've created it. Imagine the joy for you. Are those kids going to run over the first time into that playground? And are they going to grab those fences and just pull them down and rip them down and say, we don't want fences in here. We don't want boundaries. No, they're not going to do that. Are they going to run over and they're going to go straight to that list of rules and say, what, we can't run and we can't bring in drinks and we can't chew gum and we can't let other people... This place is terrible. This stinks. I don't like this. Are they going to do that? No. They're going to enjoy the blessing of having something they've never had before. And you're going to have the joy of having given it. You know, when you, when you look at the boundaries in the physical aspect of your life, whether single or married... You can run to the sign and complain about the rules all you want. You can push against those boundaries and try to uproot them and move them and redefine them and, and say they don't exist all you want. But when the boundaries are gone, bad things happen. Bad things happen. And a God who loves you and a God who created you said, you know what, I'm going to bless my creation and I'm going to give them something called marriage, and it will be the perfect and only godly, legitimate place to fulfill this drive which I've given them. And for those that aren't married, I'm going to be their sufficiency, and I'm going to be faithful to them, to give them strength as they trust me, to give them perspective, and to work in their lives through this time, so that as one author said, they will be billboards for the sufficiency of Christ in their lives as single people. It's a blessing that God has given. The enemy will counterfeit it the instant you let him. But the best choice we can make is to praise God for the boundaries, don't move the boundaries, and to live life to the fullest within the boundaries. It's a reflection of his purity, isn't it? So that those on the outside who see us Say, so that's what purity looks like. Only God could do that in a person's life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even in the aspect of marriage and single life, Lord, that boundaries exist. Lord, they, they exist to put you on display, really. Lord, we don't have to go far to, to see stories of performers and Hollywood stars and people in the public eye that really live without boundaries and lord many times their their lives are just a wreck just just a train wreck and yet lord we can also go to people students and adults believers who do live according to the boundaries and lord you give you give fulfillment there lord that this world can't offer thank you lord that being able to operate the way paul talks about is really only possible for one who knows you and today, for some, the first decision to make really is to give their lives to Christ, to be forgiven of all their sin, to see the slate wiped clean. And Lord, so grateful that you do that. 
Lord, there's some who are here today and they look back over the course of their life and they see that they did move the boundaries and they stepped over the line. And yet today, Lord, they're in a relationship with you. And, and Lord, I, I hope that right where they sit, they are praising you, God, that you are a God who meets us where we are and you cleanse and forgive and you heal and you deliver. Lord, there are some here, I'm sure, today that are struggling with temptation and they're over the line right now. It may be in regards to pornography or relationship that is that is not according to your word lord thank you that you give the strength to do the right thing lord you give the strength to do what's right to take the step in the right direction and that as we confess lord you heal and forgive but lord it all starts with our relationship with you god help us to be mindful that our culture is really no different than the one that paul spoke to lord we have no reinforcement to live in a way that is pure except from you and your word and your people. And so, Lord, help us to live in a way that honors you. And we thank you that as we do, Lord, that you bring fulfillment that only you can. So bless the decisions we need to make today. There are some that may need to really change some things in their lives based on what your word says. There are some today that that really need to reinforce and strengthen some things. Help us to do what you've called us to do today. And may you get the glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.